News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today is a big day in Ottawa and, of course, right across the Canada because it is Federal Budget Day. Let's find out what we can expect. Joining us now is Amanda Connolly from Global in Ottawa. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. So what can we expect? I know there's been like little kind of leaks and this and that. And what can we expect to hear today? Of course, we always get, you know, little tidbits here and there. And for the most part, what we've seen coming out is really a reflection of what's already in the Liberal platform. Uh, And so it seems that they are going to be moving forward with a number of the spending commitments they made in that really what we're watching for here is potentially billions in new spending, particularly details around the promised dental care program that was really a key agreement of their deal with the NDP for that supply confidence and supply arrangement a couple of weeks ago. We're looking for any clues about increases to defense spending as well. And another big one as well, both for folks where I am here in Ottawa and Ontario and for your listeners in BC and in the greater Vancouver area is house prices. Uh, measures to deal with housing affordability and the cost of homes right now is expected to also play a really key role in the budget. And what in what way? Like, what are they going to do? What are you hearing? So this is really what, what I mean, what we're looking for. We know from the liberal the liberal campaign platform in 2021 that they had a number of proposals proposals in there, including uh, banning foreign buyers for a period of time, including um, looking at ways to work with municipalities to get more money in their hands, both to build affordable housing and also to free up some of the zoning restrictions that have proven, we've heard again and again from, from folks who work kind of in the, the ground level in real estate, have proven really challenging to getting denser housing built around urban areas. And so these are all things that we're watching to see if they are in the budget today. Of course, they uh, the Liberals really put a, put a big focus on housing. They had a whole kind of housing plank of their platform. And so with the rising cost of living, with inflation, with the the real volatility that we've seen in the housing market over the course of the past two years, there's a lot of eyes right now on the budget on this particular area. So was the approach to the budget, Amanda, different this time because of this deal that they have now with the federal NDP? I think that's an interesting question. And of course, it's we, we, we really can't say until we see what's actually in the budget, but certainly it's it's shaping up that this budget could be kind of a first test of that deal with the NDP. We heard the NDP using that phrasing um, yesterday and, and earlier uh, this this week. Uh, they, of course, are, are hopeful that there will be no surprises in the budget, that they really want to see progress on some of the things in that deal that they've agreed to, in particular, the dental care for children under the age of 12, the really beginning of that that national program um, for, for folks who are on um, lower lower income. And so this this is one of the key things, but also they're, they're facing a really challenging situation here in terms of the spending programs that they've promised and that they've indicated they want to put in around cost of living, around things like dental care, and also the fact that we're living in a really uncertain, volatile time right now. And and a lot of economists are saying, we've been spending so much for the past couple of years, now is the time to maybe pull back a bit and save some money for a rainy day or free up some of that budgetary space for the inevitable next rainy day. Right. And that's why I guess that indicates all the pressure that's on this particular budget. And, and Finance Minister Krista Freeland, is, it, is this really the first kind of real budget we've had, given how chaotic the last two years were? I think that 
that could be a fair characterization. Again, this uh, we, we've seen a couple of, um, I guess we'll say, fiscal kind of documents from her. Of course, right. the government didn't table um, a formal budget in 2020 with the pandemic. They did kind of a fiscal update. Uh, we saw a, a budget last year as well and, and, and another fiscal update. But this this one, I think, is interesting because we're looking at a budget, of course, when, when they did their update in the fall, it was really heavily warning that Omicron was clouding any forecasts, both in terms of what would happen next for spending and also where inflation would go. Well, we know where inflation has gone. It's gone up. Um, it is high right now. It is very difficult for a lot of families. And figuring out um, what the, the path ahead is going to look like as the WHO and provinces have really shifted a lot of their, their wording around how to live and move forward with the, the ongoing pandemic. I think that we're, we're going to, we've certainly seen indications that we could see this as kind of more of an, an, an adaption focused budget here, really kind of bridging that path out of the pandemic and, and, and looking ahead to what the future could be. All right. Lots to look forward to then, Amanda. You're going to be busy today. So thank you for joining Very us. Very busy. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this morning. My pleasure. It's Amanda Connolly from Global National in Ottawa. This is Mornings with Simi. This week, you've probably heard a lot about war crimes. This because after all the destruction and the devastation of the community of Bucha that we've seen in Ukraine, seeing the bodies of people tied up and left in the streets by retreating Russian soldiers, it's all led to calls of prosecuting Russia for war crimes. But how does that happen? How do you prove what happened? And how do you bring someone to justice for that? Well, we're going to talk to somebody who knows an awful lot about this. It's our next guest, James G. Stewart, who's a UBC law professor and former war crimes prosecutor. James, thank you for being here. Pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me. So when you saw what was happening this week in Ukraine, did you immediately understand that maybe something here has to be done? Well, what's taking place in Ukraine presently is, is really a rallying cry for everyone in my field. Uh, we've unfortunately seen this a number of times, a number of different places. So, so very much the top brass in my field is being deployed to assist Ukraine. Uh, there's all sorts of initiatives left and right to try and address these sorts of atrocities. Now, when you were dealing with this, when you were a war crimes prosecutor, what was your experience in this? What did you deal with? Uh, so I worked for a period in uh, Rwanda. Uh, working with genocide in particular, and then I, I spent a number of years also as a prosecutor for the Yugoslav Tribunal, which looked at war crimes in particular uh, in uh, the former Yugoslavia. So some of these sorts of images are reminiscent very directly of the atrocities that took place in the former Yugoslavia, the images of people with their hands tied behind their backs. Uh, execution style is, is very reminiscent of uh, the Srebrenica in Bosnia, in Bosnia. Uh, several decades ago. How hard is it, though, James, to go from seeing those pictures to actually trying to bring somebody to justice for this? Can you explain that process? Well, I, I can't explain the process, and I think it, we should start by recognizing that, especially in the case of Russia, this will be exceptionally difficult. Uh, there's a great deal of evidence that needs to be required. It's one thing that knowing that atrocities take place. It's another thing proving that they took place beyond reasonable doubt. So there are all sorts of legal and uh, evidential and political hurdles to doing that. But I think one of the things that we should be thinking about a little bit more is, is not so much about will Putin ever stand trial. I think most people recognize that that's uh, politically unlikely, but really more about how international criminal law more broadly can disrupt Russian aggression and atrocities. And so not thinking so much about Putin, but thinking much more broadly about his 
entourage and everyone involved in the criminal campaign, from military leaders to political supporters, business people supporting his actions. And then to think about the ways that international criminal law can not so much just put Putin behind bars, but can deter that wide range of actors, can rhetorically delegitimize what's taking place at Russia's behest, and destabilize the aggression by sort of precluding access to essential resources and support from foreign governments. So uh, there's a broader focus, I think, about the way international criminal justice might be helpful here. Okay. How do you even start to gather evidence, though? Well, there's a range of different ways of, of gathering evidence. So let's just talk um, practically about the, the Boucher uh, incidents where people have hands tied behind their backs and are executed. Uh, there's a great deal of photo evidence of this already. Russia claimed initially that this was all staged, and then there was satellite imagery, imagery that was published revealing um, corroborating the idea that they were executions, the sort of satellite images used in war crimes prosecutions uh, relatively frequently. You have witness testimony, and there will now be lawyers sent to places like Boucher to gather this evidence so that it's available if and when a prosecution takes place. These are just some of the examples of ways that evidence can be brought, and then you have to sort of channel it to prosecutors in different courts throughout the world who might be able to action some of the people uh, implicated in this. Yeah, you said some of the people. Is there any way to get to the people who would have given the order who allowed this to happen? So this is the perennial challenge in all war crimes prosecutions. Is you start with sort of crime-based evidence, which is the, the sorts of things that I've been discussing earlier, people being executed and left in the streets. Clearly there's a crime here. And then the question becomes, who's responsible for this and how far up a, a chain of command can we responsibility. This is always the challenge. It's the challenge that's sort of similar in the Second World War about whether we can hold Hitler responsible for the Holocaust and what evidence will be required to, to show that Hitler was responsible for this is, again, legally and, and practically a, a challenging set of questions. So there's a lot of evidence required to prove this linkage between the crime base, what took place in the streets of Busha, and all the way up the chain of command into uh, Putin himself. This is always a big challenge for war crimes prosecutors. It's the challenge that was that made the uh, Milosevic trial such a complex process. It's the same sorts of challenges uh, with international trials in Africa, in South America. Um, so we, we expect to see that again in these sorts of cases. James, how did you find the work? Like, it sounds from the process that you've described there that it could be very frustrating at times because you see what's happened, you know, you believe that this is a war crime, but trying to make somebody responsible for it sounds incredibly challenging. Well, I have a nice slogan that I share with people who ask that question. It's, it's the best and the worst work I've ever had. Um, it's the best in the sense that one's always motivated by a sort of sense that People can't get away with this. Uh, this is totally, totally outrageous. Uh, something needs to be done. And although these trials are political to some extent, or at least the ability to, to bring them is impeded by politics all the time, they're imperfect, but someone still needs to be held accountable for what is really quite atrocious. And then on the other hand, you have the sort of uh, the challenges of bringing the cases, the subject matter is exceptionally difficult. Uh, and so one's constantly in between those two poles 
oscillating between thinking this is really crucial and, and people really need to be dedicated to this. We can't again be tolerating these types of atrocities. And on the other hand, thinking, oh, this is a really difficult area and it's impeded left and right by all sorts of different politics. And that just seems to happen every single time. You mentioned the Milosevic trial there. That seemed like such a clear case, and yet it ended up being so complicated, and it seemed to drag on forever, didn't it? Yeah, there there are many cases that we could talk about that were difficult, many cases we could talk about that should have happened that didn't happen, and then other sorts of cases that uh, on their face seem really quite crucial, like in the 1960s, a set of trials around Auschwitz in Germany itself that were really crucial in producing German contrition. Uh, Fujimori trial in South America, where a former president of a country is held criminally responsible for crimes against humanity. And as we speak in Sweden, there's a trial of two uh, CEOs of a company called Linden for complicity in crimes against humanity in Sudan. These are politically very ambitious trials that, that have important consequences. So, yeah, the field is a difficult field. It's, it's one with lots of failure, lots of difficulty, but other moments of hope and, and I think, justice. Well, listen, thank you for explaining it to us. We appreciate that today. Pleasure. Thanks. So That's James G. Stewart, UBC law professor and former war crimes prosecutor, talking about the challenges that will be faced if we do move forward and try to prosecute Russia for war crimes, given what we've seen happen in Bucha this week. And that does sound like something prosecutors, war crimes prosecutors around the world are gearing up to do. This is Mornings with Simi. In fact, uh, today is the last day of the vaccine card program here in British Columbia. As of tomorrow, it will be gone. Meanwhile, we're still doing a lot of research on the impact of COVID-19. There's new research out today from the BC Centre on Substance Use and the University of British Columbia. And it is suggesting that there are many people who remain at risk of serious problems caused by COVID-19. Let's talk more about this research. Joining us is Dr. Brittany Barker, the co-principal investigator and research scientist at UBC's Department of Medicine and BCCSU. Dr. Barker, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this research. What did you look into here? Great. Uh, Yeah, so we conducted a study looking at COVID vaccination uptake and acceptance among a marginalized population of people who use drugs in Vancouver with high rates of homelessness, poverty, and health conditions that make them vulnerable to more severe cases and outcomes of COVID-19. And what we found was that vaccination rates were 15 to 20 percent lower than the provincial vaccination rate throughout our study, and that that ended with uh, just under two-thirds of the population having been double vaccinated in January. Hmm, Okay, and what kind of an impact did that have if they weren't as vaccinated? Well, um, our study didn't really look in that, but uh, we can can surmise that this population, um, because there's high rates of homelessness and living in congregate settings like shelters or single-room occupancy hotels, um, that are really high population density with little room to socially distance, Um, as well as underlying health conditions like uh, lung issues around COPD, hepatitis C, and compromised immune systems. So this population really um, 
could be quite vulnerable to poor outcomes. And that's why vaccination was uh, really important. And uh, Vancouver Coastal Health had a very concentrated, targeted mm-hmm. um, campaign around getting this population vaccinated, um, which we know from people we work with, uh, people with lived experience who advise and work on the study, that you know, VCH's campaign was really uh, mostly well received in community. Um, there was pop up clinics inside of overdose prevention sites and housing sites. There were nursing outreach teams. You know, you didn't have to make an appointment via the provincial online system. So all of these really innovative, low barrier methods, um, as well as the inclusion of people with lived experience to go out and and get the word out about the vaccines and to combat some of that misinformation. So all of this and still lower rates. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. I mean, that was, they'd put a lot of effort. I know Vancouver Coastal Health did into that program of getting into the community and getting people vaccinated. Does that just demonstrate, Dr. Barker, do you think the huge challenge here? Yeah, definitely. Exactly. And, and I can speak to that, but you know, VCH, um, is model like uh, compared there's another study uh, from September on the border of San Diego Tijuana of people who inject drugs and they found that only seven just under eight percent of people had received um, one dose in September so you know compared those numbers to the to the 64 percent we found in January you know we've got to do a little bit of math but that's that's significantly better so we know that then there, from what this research tells us, is that there's still an awful lot of people who are vulnerable potentially to the impacts of COVID-19. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there's a, there's a, like a bunch of reasons um, that I can speak to for why people may not want to get vaccinated or may be hesitant around that in this population. Um, many have experienced stigmatizing, poor and harmful treatment within our healthcare system. Um, and this really contributes to medical mistrust. Uh, and then there's something that we've heard loud and clear from folks, again, that we work with, and that there was a real disparity in the response to COVID crisis versus the overdose toxic drug supply crisis. Um, as you know, we're in our sixth year of the overdose public health emergency, and and people in the downtown east side, um, or many that we talked to, felt like they were only prioritized for vaccination now um, or prioritized for public health because they posed a threat to the general public. Oh, you're right. We do need to dig into that more. Uh, Dr. Barker, thank Mm -hmm. you for your time. No problem. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Finding a family doctor. We have talked more and more about this recently because it seems like so many of you out there are having trouble finding one. Well, what is being done about it? If you ask the BC Green Party and the MLAs, they would say not enough. Now, currently there are between 750,000, as many as 900,000 British Columbians without a family doctor. So what are the other potential solutions out there? Joining us now is Sonia Firstnow, BC Green Party leader, to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. How much have you heard about this from people? Oh, the, the two most significant issues we hear about in our constituency office is lack of access to housing and lack of access to family doctors. And so what is going on out there that you have seen? Is it just doctors retiring? Is it not enough doctors? What's happening? 
Yeah, it's a combination of, of things. So, um, unfortunately, that's, doctors retiring is, is one that is seems to be happening a lot. And because there isn't another doctor there stepping up to take over the practice, uh, people have, find themselves all of a sudden, uh, oftentimes without a, a doctor. And uh, the, the challenge is that a lot of the younger doctors don't want to come in to the fee-for-service model where they have to run a business as well as provide primary care to their patients. So then how do we fix that? So there's alternative payment models, and I think you know we have some of this happening in BC already where you have salaried positions or bundled services uh, really focusing on quality of care over quantity of care. Um, but that's only about 20% of the budget that, that goes into the alternative payment models. 80% still is the fee-for-service for family doctors. And I think what we need to see from the provincial government is a real urgency around uh, getting these alternative payment models, getting doctors to a, a place where they feel like they want to be providing that really important longitudinal care to patients because we know that that is so critical for long-term health and well-being, not only of, of people, but of the healthcare system generally. So are you saying that we should run it more like the way we run an emergency room in a hospital, and that is doctors should work directly for the health authority? You know, I've, I've heard concerns about that. That's what the, U, the UPCCs, the Urgent Primary Care Centres, are uh, operated by the health authority, and there are some some benefits, but also some challenges with that. I think what you could look at more ideally is the primary care networks with the team-based care uh, and that the funding from government goes into that setting up that primary care network. The, the professional health uh, providers then determine how to operate within them. They're not working directly for the health authority, um, but the, the funding from government comes to support that primary care network. Okay, so you're saying that we need to take the small business aspect out of it for some doctors. Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of doctors didn't go into med school to become small business people. They went into med school to be able to provide health care, and that's what they want to focus on. Doesn't that sound more like a clinic situation, though, as opposed to having a relationship with a family doctor? Well, I think we can have the the relationship, and, and this is the primary care networks, where you have that longitudinal relationship with your the family doctor there, um, and ideally the team. We've been calling for having psychologists added to the primary care network so that you can also get access to mental health care when you need it um, from a psychologist. But I think what we have to do, and, and there was a really great piece in the Globe and Mail on the weekend looking at the healthcare system generally in Canada, we have to be able to recognize that there, there needs to be a range of models. Some doctors might want to stay with fee-for-service. Other doctors really want to be in a salaried position. Other doctors want to definitely be part of a primary care network and, and uh, doing the team-based care. What we need from the provincial government is a recognition that the urgency right now, because almost a million people don't have a, a family doctor, is we've got to get solutions on the table and moving as quickly as possible to get those doctors serving the people who need them. Now, I think a lot of doctors would say what we need to improve is the fee-for-service situation, that they need to get paid more to spend more yeah. time with patients. Do you support that? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is where, like I said, there's, there's a number of potential solutions. 
And if you look at the cost right now that doctors are facing, they're getting the same fee for every appointment that they do, but leasing costs are going up, uh, you know, their expenses keep going up. So what they take home from that fee goes down. And I, I understand that they are enormously frustrated by this situation. BC has among the lowest paid family doctors in the country. So how do we fix that then? Do you say you treat by condition? Do you, I don't know, how do you, how do you fix that? That's one of the other alternative payment methods, which is bundled payment. So you can say, okay, there's, there's a, a patient that has this procedure and there's the bundled payment for that, for that whole thing from beginning to end, as opposed to, you know, you're going to get paid for the 15-minute visit every time they come. And, and again, this is what we need to see from the province is that willingness to, to get more nimble and more flexible and to listen to what doctors are telling them about uh, how to improve their condition so that they can, in turn, really be focusing on the quality of longitudinal care that they're providing their patients. Would the Green Party support the idea of training more doctors, having more seats available, allowing you know, doctors who are from here who trained elsewhere to come back home? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, we need an all-hands-on-deck approach to this. Uh, when you have almost one-fifth of your population without a family doctor, uh, that is a, a very urgent situation. And we know that when people don't have a family doctor, um, they'll delay getting health care when they need it. We don't get to the preventative health care, which is so critical to taking the burden off of our health care system. And you don't have that advocate within the system who is there, who is your person to make sure that when you're navigating through the hospital or through things like childbirth, that you have that person who is your, your primary care physician. Do we know how much this would cost? Well, I mean, I think we have to look at the cost of what it is, the burden on our healthcare system when people are having to go to a hospital or to urgent care because they are not getting the primary care. And the, the studies that look at this are really clear, which is that the, the greater the level of, of primary care, of family care, uh, and preventative care, the less the overall cost is on our on our healthcare system generally, it's so much more expensive uh, when somebody has to present to an emergency uh, department because they haven't been able to get access to a, a primary care physician. All right. Well, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Always a pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we are going to talk about the record number of people who are moving to BC. We know this is happening. StatsCan told us we hadn't had that much interprovincial migration since 1961. And we also know that we are short, short on people to take jobs. We are short on housing. We are short on things that are affordable for us here. There was a report last month from the Union of BC Municipalities, too, that found that while our housing inventory is maybe keeping up with population growth, a lot of these new homes still are unattainable for so many people. Let's talk more about this. Adil Danani joins us now, the founder and principal of Danani Group Real Estate Advisors. Adil, thanks for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. What are you seeing in the market right now? I know the interest rates are kind of creeping up there, and I'm sure that's having an impact too. So we're watching the interest rates very closely. I think that's a really the key metric to determine where the market's going to be going for the next quarter. 
We're seeing five-year interest rates almost hit 4%, and we haven't seen that in several years. So last year, if you did a kind of year-over-year comparison, that same kind of uh, product, like if you have a five-year fixed mortgage, was closer to 2%. So we look at interest rates doubling. That's obviously going to impact affordability. Um, The market is starting to stabilize now. We are starting to see a little bit more inventory. But now with you know, uh, stats kind of releasing these numbers about immigration, where we're seeing over 100,000 people come into the province, um, you know, in 2021, that's going to have an underlying supporting supportive effect to the market going forward, for sure. Okay, but you talked about affordability, then when interest rates go up, though, do you think that could also impact prices? Are perhaps sellers going to have to uh, adjust their expectations? Uh, so we're actually starting to see, I mean, I think we're in the early days of, uh, you know, the market stabilizing and potentially changing course. But um, I think the prices that we saw, like we saw the market move very quickly in January and February. Prices, you know, we were, as you know, I work with Royal LePage, uh, you know, we're a, a large national firm. We came out with our forecast in January. And so, I mean, we were expecting a 10% increase for the entire calendar year in Vancouver. Um, or Metro Vancouver, and, and you know, arguably we saw that 10% in the first 60 days um, of the year. Like things came out of the gate extremely strong. Um, so I don't think we're going to see any additional price growth this year. In fact, we're starting to see the market stabilize, and we're having these honest and you know uh, very candid discussions with our sellers that you know the the frothiness in the market or or the you know the the list price and then the ultimate selling price. Those ratios were way out of whack in the first 60 days. And now they're starting to come down to reality. So you may not get, you know, all things being equal, what your neighbor got, you know, 30 to 45 days ago. The market is starting to stabilize. And I think buyers are also being more cautious and prudent, especially with the higher the higher interest rates. Okay, now I remember when this happened before, back in 2016, 2017, when new measures got put in place. And it seems to me that sometimes, Adil, isn't that a hard pill for sellers to swallow? Because they're thinking, I want what my neighbor got. It is. Um, it's education, um, certainly, like it's an education process um, from our end, like when we're sitting down with potential sellers in terms of like communicating what's happening. I think that at the end of the day, I mean, like if you've held this asset or held this house for the last three, four years, I mean, if it's gone up 40% in the last two years, if the market ultimately stabilizes or even comes off five or 7%, you're still sitting on an incredible amount of equity. I think that's the way to look at it. And also, um, I think overall, like from a market condition standpoint, this is healthy uh, for the market to stabilize, uh, potentially change course, to move to more more of a balanced environment. I would I would argue that's that's normal and natural, and and that would be better for the long term sustainability of the market for sure. Because the way it was going, it was not sustainable. No, it wasn't sustainable at all. But it, I th- also got the impression that a lot of people in the industry thought that the ride was never going to end. Right? Yeah. That it was going to go up and up and up. Did you get that sense? Yeah, like the hockey stick graph, you know, it doesn't it doesn't go on forever. It's got to stabilize. You've got to have a flattening out effect. And now we're starting to see that. I think it's really good. Like I've been a, I've been you know a realtor and practicing in the, in the industry for over sixteen years, and we know um, categorically that markets don't go up forever. Um, we always we also know that there's an inverse relationship between price growth and um, and interest rates. Right in the last two years, it's, it's no surprise that we've seen, you know, record-breaking sales for consecutive months is because we've seen record low interest rates. And now that interest rates are also changing course, I think the market should probably likely follow suit as well. I think what we're watching carefully is what does what do interest rates do? What, do the, what does the Bank of Canada do in their April meeting? Do they move a quarter point? Do they move 50 basis points? Because if you have five-year 
fixed interest rates um, rising and you also have variable rates rising, I mean, that's that's certainly going to have a cooling effect. Um, on the market for for the balance of the year. There are some kind of rumors out there, Adele, that today in the federal budget, the federal government will go ahead and ban foreign buyers for two years to try to also push down some of these prices. What kind of an impact do you think that might have? I'm very curious to see what that policy looks like um, in terms of like what the fine print is. We've had, um, you know, we've had preventative measures here in British Columbia for over four years with our foreign buyer tax, you know, the Liberal government's government put in a 15% tax and the Horgan government upped it to 20%. So we've got barriers to entry already. Um, we've got the market sorting itself out right now. You know, we're, we're finding a new equilibrium, a, you know, a balancing point in the market. Um, we are closely watching, of course, what the federal government does. We are closely watching what the provincial government does and Selena Robinson with their proposed, you know, um, cooling off period. Um, you know, I think the bright note in the market is, um, you know, these immigration numbers. We continuously having, continuously are, are seeing that people want to be in Vancouver. You know, it's a tier one city. You can't, no matter what the market's doing, it's a desirable place to live. And ultimately, there's always these foundational pillars to a strong housing market, right? You've got um, employment growth, which we're, you know, our employment numbers are back to where they were pre-pandemic, which is encouraging. Um, you've got um, some income growth and income stability, and now you've got this population uh, influx. Um, and mm-hmm. with the ambitious numbers that Trudeau has for next year, like over 400,000 people coming to our country, you know, we're going to see about 17 or 18 percent of that come to BC. So, you know, we're going to continue having fresh folks come to come to the province. All right. More to talk about on that one. Adil, thank you for your time. Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we are going to talk about climate change. Have we reached the point of no return when it comes to trying to do something about that? There have been some recent reports that have come out about that. Joining us now to talk more about that is Dr. Chris Bataille, who's the Associate Researcher for the Canadian Energy and Emissions Data Centre and a contributor to the United Nations Climate Change Report. Thank you for joining us. Oh, hi. It's nice to be here today. Now, it seems to me, Dr. Bataille, that the messages over the last even couple of weeks are getting more and more urgent. Is that because of the research that we're seeing? Uh, this has been accumulating for well for a couple of decades now. Uh, we're well beyond. We've admitted too much already. We're into the point where we're incurring damages, um, you know. But that's the bad news. The good news, however, is with the latest report, it's it's now easier and cheaper than it ha- has ever been before to bring down emissions. Okay, but are we doing that? We're getting there. <laughs> um, well, first, in the transport sector, um, battery electric vehicles are looking cheaper every year. Uh, their market share is rising. Um, you know, both and and we'll go first with cars, and then trucks, and then larger larger vehicles, and those might be partly powered by hydrogen. Um, with with buildings, um, we need to go to heat pumps, more efficient shells, perhaps some solar panels on the south facing routes, what have you. Um, again, that's something that we need to start immediately because it's more expensive to renovate them than to build them new. Um, my own research is on heavy industry, and that and with the technology exists to basically eliminate emissions in steel, cement, chemicals, what have you. But we need to, there's only so many opportunities to build or replace a steel or cement plant. So we have to catch those plants when they're ready for renovation. Okay, but this all has to be done, you know, by 2030, right? If we're going to have a substantial impact. Yeah. 
yes. So what the what the report calls for is that global emissions need to fall by half by 2030, um, and then to go to net zero by 2050. Uh, now, the the good news in that is it's actually cheaper than we expected. They expected um, at least half of those emissions could be sorry. You can get to half for about a hundred tons dollars per ton U.S. or less, and half of that is for twenty dollars a ton or less. So it's a matter, once we get going with this, it's not going to be that expensive, but we need to line up the consistent policy to make it happen. So everybody's next car needs to be electric or hybrid. Every, now, every next time you replace a furnace, it needs to be a heat pump or perhaps with gas boost in it, what have you. But it needs everything, everything new after this needs to be ultra clean. And do you feel that we're turning towards that? I know that gas prices are probably helping in this regard, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's, it's been cheaper to oper- operate a battery electric vehicle for a while, and, and this is just improving those economics. Okay, but will it happen fast enough? I guess, are the policies there, Dr. Patel? Like, do you see, you mentioned consistent policies needed to make this happen, but do you see those in place? We're getting there. It's not fast enough. Um, you know, uh, some jurisdictions in North America, Europe's generally on track, some jurisdictions in North America. Basically, we need to tighten the regs such that all new, everything that emits that burns fossil fuels on its next replacement cycle needs to be non-emitting. That, that's how fast it needs to be. And we're, we're not quite there with the policy. Okay, so even if we start doing this, and even if we can hit these targets in 2030 and make that happen, is it that just kind of keeping things the way they are now? I mean, we're not talking about a reversal. We're not here. We're not going backwards. I feel like we've reached a tipping point here. Oh, no, we've gone through several tipping points. (laughs) Um, The trick is we don't want to go through any more bigger tipping points if we can possibly avoid it. Uh, You know, we're at plus 1.1C already in the floods and heat domes and everything you've seen in the last year. That's that's been associated with that. Um, what I'm talking about will likely keep us somewhere between one and a half and two C. So we're talking a whole other degree. And then once we get to net zero, we have to start hauling carbon dioxide back out of the air. So we've got to use uh, bioenergy with CCS. We've got to use natural, you know, regrowing forests. We, and, uh, and then there's a thing called direct air capture, where we use chemical processes to capture the CO2 and then re-inject it underground. Do you see a jurisdiction or a country out there that is leading the way on this that you think, okay, they are on target? Uh, Europe is close. California is close. New York is close. British Columbia is pro- British Columbia and Quebec are the two most advanced uh, jurisdictions in Canada. Um, that's about it right now. Is there economic incentive in doing this as well? Oh, in the long run, this is going to save us money. Uh, running everything on as much as you possibly can on cheap, renewable electricity. It's not going to be all renewable, but it'll be probably 70, 80, 90 percent of it will be wind and solar, what have you. And then you'll need other things for backup. But that is going to be cheaper than the energy we have today. And that will provide a long term economic boost. But we, we do have this sort of uh, a capital investment of investment hump that we have to get through to invest in the technologies to get to that space where energy is cheaper for everyone. And we're just not exposed to high gasoline prices, high gas and high methane prices. What are the next steps, do you think? What are the immediate next steps that need to be taken? 
on the part, okay, on the part of government, it's just all new vehicles, all new buildings, uh, all new industry just needs to be, uh, it needs to be non-emitting. On the part of people, you know, where you can walk, cycle, you know, share your car with someone else, make your next vehicle electric. Uh, believe it or not, eating less beef and more chicken, more vegetables really does make a difference. Uh, you know, everything adds up and some things are under our personal control and some things we need to, you know, work with, it, with government and industry to make happen. All right. Interesting stuff. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Appreciate that. Dr. Chris Bataille is Associate Researcher for the Canadian Energy and Emissions Data Centre. It was a contributor to the United Nations Climate Change Report where they are saying, listen, it is now, I believe the uh, UN Secretary General uh, once called it Code Red for humanity to get moving on this. This most recent report from the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just came out a few days ago. And as Dr. Bataille pointed out, they are pointing out a lot has to happen uh, between now and 2030 to get on target.